Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Andy, and welcome to Unnatural, the first solo episode in Unnatural history, and also the last episode of 2023. Now, a couple programming notes. Emily's doing good. She wanted to say hi. She's going to be back when she can. But we do have some exciting news. Ryan, who joined us in our last episode about Lois Reese, the killer grandma of Minnesota, She's going to be jumping on a couple times in January. We also have a few big interviews we're going to be doing in January as well. So it's going to be a big start to 2024. But I thought it would be interesting to look back on 2023 as a whole and kind of zoom out and look at some of the biggest true crime cases that happened this year. Now, some of these cases are events that happened and transpired over the year. Others are cases that had a resolution. There's gonna be a little bit of everything. We're even gonna go international on this episode. So let's get it started. The top 10 true crime cases of 2023. one in the top 10 because there really wasn't any new development in the case, but rather just a weird, strange occurrence that happened because of it. And it involves Madeline McCann. May of this year marked 16 years since Madeline McCann went missing from her room while she was vacationing with her family in Portugal. Her disappearance and what happened afterward became one of the biggest true crime stories really of this century. Madeline was born in the UK and was just shy of her fourth birthday when she vanished off the face of the earth. And there have been countless theories and developments in the case over the last decade and a half. One of the most promising actually occurred back in 2020. You might have heard about it when German authorities named a man a prime suspect in the case. However, that still remains up in the air as to whether or not he will actually be charged. But this year saw a strange turn of events, or at least in the public eye, as a woman in Poland named Julia Wendell or Julia Fastiana claimed earlier in the year that she believed she could be Madeline. Now, you probably saw her claims went absolutely viral all over the world, and many thought that she did bear a striking resemblance to the missing girl. Her story was featured prominently on a number of television shows, true crime shows, and really everywhere on social media. But not long after her story popped up, people began to poke holes in the entire tale, leading many to believe that she made it all up for publicity. And as it turns out, that's exactly what she did. As Jerry and Kate McCann agreed to a DNA test, because at this point they are taking no chances and looking at all leads. Well, as you probably heard, Julia did make the entire thing up. She has since faded back into obscurity, and the McCanns are no closer in finding out what happened to their daughter. Let's hope 2024 brings them some answers. 
That brings us to our number 10 case, and it is the story of the death of Eric Richens. Now, this is a case that we covered back in the spring, but there have been some new developments on it. Eric Richens was a 39-year-old man who was found dead at the foot of his bed in March of 2022. Now, an autopsy and toxicology report showed that he had a huge amount of the lethal drug fentanyl in his system. That's according to the medical examiner. Now, his wife, Corey, had told police at the time she had brought her husband a Moscow Mule cocktail into his bedroom at their home in Utah. And then she said she went into another room to sleep with their son in his room. She then told police that she returned around 3 a.m. to find her husband lying dead on the floor. And the weirdest thing about this is about a year later, Corey actually published a children's book titled Are You With Me? In it, she talks about how to deal with grief after losing someone you love. Now, Eric actually had a number of other incidents with Corey in the years and months leading up to his untimely death, leading his friends and family to be suspicious of her from the start. In fact, there was a very memorable moment after Eric had died when there was a family gathering where Eric's sister confronted Corey and the police had to be involved. Corey has been charged with the murder of Eric Richens, along with being accused of tampering, according to court documents. And there has been a lot of speculation as to why she murdered her husband in the first place. Many believe that she thought she was going to get a substantial payout in his will should he die. But Corey learned just two days after her husband's death that she was not named in his will. And those closest to him say it's because he was suspicious of Corey for a number of months. And in regards to the trial, at a hearing on November 3rd, a third district court judge said that there was, quote, substantial evidence supporting the aggravated murder charge. And because of this, her assets are actually frozen now. And that includes all of the assets of her job as well. She was a realtor. And on top of that, the judge actually gave Eric Richen's family a formal financial interest in Corey's own estate. Now, Corey's lawyers tried to get the trial dismissed entirely, but that motion was denied in November. The aggravated murder trial of Corey Richens is expected to commence in early 2024. That takes us to our number nine case, and it was another case in which we covered back in January of this year, the bizarre death of Elliot Blair. He was an American lawyer who was vacationing with his wife in a Mexican resort. Elliot and his wife Kimberly were actually celebrating their one-year anniversary at the Las Rocas Resort. They had been there a number of times before. It's located about 40 miles south of the border with the United States and Mexico in the Baja Peninsula. But sadly, only Kimberly would return from this vacation as she was told that Elliot died in an accident while she was asleep. Now, this didn't seem to add up to Kimberly, and she had a lot of suspicions and questions. 
And in that episode, we go into great detail about what the couple was up to while they were at the resort and why Elliot may have been murdered in the first place. See, the local Mexican authorities said that Elliot had fallen to his death by accident late at night while his wife was asleep. However, an independent autopsy performed in the United States determined that Elliot had over 40 fractures on his head, which appeared to be sustained from being bludgeoned by some sort of large object. He also had road rash on his knees and a toe injury, indicating that he was dragged. Something else of note, Elliot's wife Kimberly told U.S. authorities when she returned that a few hours before Elliot's death, they were actually stopped by Mexican police in some sort of a shakedown for money, which apparently does happen to some American tourists when they're in the area. Elliot was firm with them and let them know that he was a lawyer and that he knew his rights, but he did eventually give them $160 just so him and his wife could get away. The problem with this case is that it happened to a U.S. citizen in a foreign country, and there is a lot of red tape involved trying to bring those who may have perpetrated this crime to justice, as it would almost be impossible to extradite them to an American court unless there is a lot of give and take, a lot of back and forth between American and Mexican authorities. There isn't a whole lot more to report on this case as of now, but as soon as we find out any new developments, we'll give you an update. Our next case takes us all the way down under with the mushroom killings of Australia. You may remember this one. It was actually our first episode of the season this year. And in July in Victoria, Australia, Leangatha specifically, Aaron Patterson invited her in-laws, Don and Gail Patterson, over, along with Gail's sister and her husband, Ian Wilkinson. Erin had some sort of hope that she could get back together with her estranged husband, so she invited him to dinner as well, but at the last minute, he canceled. Now, Erin served the party beef wellington glazed with mushrooms, which sounds like a delightful meal. The only problem... The mushrooms she served were not store-bought, but rather the death cap mushroom, which is one of the most poisonous things that grow on the earth. Sadly, just a short time later, Don and Gail Patterson would be dead, and Heather Wilkinson died within a few days of ingesting the deadly fungi as well. Ian Wilkinson did end up pulling through, although he needed a liver transplant to do so. When we covered this case back in September, all signs pointed to Aaron deliberately putting the death cap mushrooms in the meal, but she hadn't been formally charged. Well, that has since changed, as Aaron was arrested back in November and is awaiting trial for murder in May of 2024. It is worth noting that she still maintains her innocence. Obviously, we will keep you posted on this case, but in the meantime, if you want a more in-depth look at the Mushroom Killings of Australia, you can check out our episode released earlier this year. Let's move on to number seven, the absolutely crazy case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. If you haven't heard about this one, well, a number of years ago, back in June of 2015, sheriff's deputies in Missouri found the body of Dee Dee Blanchard, 
she was face down in her bedroom and lying in a pool of blood. She had stab wounds, and it appeared that she had been there for a number of days. The thing is, there was no sign of her daughter, Gypsy Rose. Dee Dee had been saying for years that Gypsy Rose had several medical conditions. She said she had asthma, muscular dystrophy, even leukemia. And because she was prematurely born, she also had brain damage and the mental capacity of a child. But things got weird when some of the neighbors and citizens of Greene County, Missouri, noticed a number of Facebook posts that appeared to have said that Dee Dee was a victim of foul play. And the worry was Gypsy Rose had been abducted. There was a search and police eventually found Gypsy in the state of Wisconsin, where she had traveled with her boyfriend, Nicholas Gojohn. Now, she had met Nicholas virtually online, and the two formed a close bond and eventual relationship. Now, the case got even weirder after that because investigators announced publicly that Gypsy Rose wasn't a child. She was actually an adult. And what's more... They said she didn't have any of the physical or mental health issues that her mother claimed that she had all those years. So this went from the public being worried about her safety to being in shock and wondering why her mother could have done that to her for so many years. As it turns out, Dee Dee had purposefully been making her daughter pass herself off to be much younger than she was and more disabled, parading her around in a wheelchair when she was in public when, in reality, she didn't need to be wheelchair-bound at all. It was a high-stakes game of both physical control and mental control over Gypsy Rose for many, many years. And Dee Dee benefited greatly from doing this. In 2007, Gypsy was named the Child of the Year from the Ali Foundation. The next year, Habitat for Humanity actually built a home for Dee Dee and Gypsy. It had a wheelchair ramp. It had a number of other amenities, including a hot tub. And by all accounts, this was a feel-good story for the people of Springfield, Missouri. They received support from a number of charities, including the Ronald McDonald Houses, the Children's Mercy Hospital. They received free trips to Walt Disney World, even had a chance to see country star Miranda Lambert in concert and get backstage passes. That was through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is usually reserved for children who have severe illnesses, or are even on the brink of passing away. And Gypsy looked frail. She looked as though she was fighting severe illness. She was only five foot tall. Almost all of her teeth were gone. She had big glasses, and even her voice resembled a small child. It was around 2012 when Gypsy first befriended Nicholas Gojohn online. Now, he was around her age, lived a ways away in Big Bend, Wisconsin, but he did have a criminal record, which Gypsy was unaware of, of indecent exposure and also a history of mental illness himself. Gypsy would secretly arrange to meet Gojohn when she was out with her mother on appearances, and eventually the two struck up a relationship. Not long after, they began devising plans to kill Gypsy's mother, Dee Dee. It was in June of 2015 that Nicholas actually drove down 
to her home and waited for her nearby while her and her mother were at a doctor's appointment. Once they returned home, Gypsy let Nicholas inside, allegedly gave him duct tape, gloves, and a knife, and instructed him to kill her mother, Dee Dee. And it is said while the murder occurred that Gypsy actually hid herself in the bathroom and covered her ears so she wouldn't have to hear her mother screaming and pleading for help. Gojan confessed that he stabbed Dee Dee 17 times in her back while she was sleeping. He also said the two of them had sex right afterwards in Gypsy's room. They then took around $4,000 that Dee Dee had been keeping around the house. They first went to a motel outside of Springfield, Missouri, stayed there for a few days while they were trying to figure out what to do next. And apparently around that time, they thought they were going to get away with the whole thing. But they also were active on social media, at least Gypsy was. And she posted several cryptic statuses that alerted neighbors and friends, one of them simply stating, quote, that bitch is dead, end quote. Now, police traced the IP address from the device where that post was made and found Gypsy and Nicholas in Waukesha County, Wisconsin. This was when news began to trickle out that Gypsy had never been sick in the first place, and there was just a media firestorm around the entire case. There was a lengthy investigation and trial, but in July of 2015, Gypsy eventually accepted a plea bargain and agreed to serve 10 years in prison. Nicholas Godjohn's lawyers placed a heavy emphasis on his autism during the trial and said that Gypsy had come up with the entire crime, egging him on to do it. They even produced several text messages that were shared between the two of them in the weeks prior to the murder. Now, Gypsy eventually testified in Gojan's trial and stated that, yep, she did suggest to Nicholas that he kill Dee Dee just to end the years of abuse. Eventually, it went to the jury, and they found Nicholas guilty of first-degree murder and armed criminal action. In February of 2019, he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Dee Dee. While Gypsy was in prison, there was a quote she made to 2020 and 2018 that sent shivers down many people's spines. She said, quote, I feel like I'm more free in prison than living with my mom, because now I'm allowed to just live like a normal woman, end quote. This gave people a lot of sympathy for Gypsy, and while it's a complicated case, many were on her side and hoped for her eventual freedom, and freedom will soon come. That's why this is one of the biggest stories of 2023, because in September, the Missouri Department of Corrections did come out and say Gypsy has been granted parole, and she will actually be released this month, December 28th, after serving 85% of her sentence. There have been a number of documentaries and TV shows about this case, including an Investigation Discovery Channel documentary, as well as one that you can see on Max, which is called Mommy Dead and Dearest. Our number six case is another one where the crime occurred a number of years ago, but we finally started to see some resolution. In September of 2019, 16-year-old Tylee Ryan and her 7-year-old brother Joshua Jackson Vallow went missing. It wasn't until a year later that their bodies were finally found in shallow graves 
in the eastern Idaho town of Rexburg. And they just happened to be buried in the backyard of one Chad Daybell, who was their mother's boyfriend at the time of their disappearance and eventually became her husband. Tylee was last seen in early September while she was on a trip to Yellowstone National Park, and Josh was last seen a few weeks later, but it was months before either of their disappearances were notified to the authorities. In November of 2019, police asked Lori and Chad about Josh's whereabouts, and they told him he was staying with a family friend in Arizona. Well, when police spoke to this family friend, they said they not only had not seen Josh, but they were also worried about Tylee's welfare, which is when police realized she was missing too. Some other weird things that happened while the kids were missing included the death of Lori's estranged husband, Charles, who was shot by Lori's brother, Alexander, who claimed it was in self-defense. Now, he himself would later die in December of 2019 of a blood clot. And in October, Chad Daybell's wife, Tammy, was attacked in her own driveway and died of her injuries a number of days later. It was initially thought that she died of natural causes. However, when Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow got married shortly thereafter, authorities decided to exhume the body and found that Tammy had died of asphyxiation or suffocation. Lori was eventually arrested in February of 2020 while she was vacationing in Hawaii, and she was initially charged with desertion and non-support of her children because, remember, this was before their bodies were found. But after Tylee and Josh were found a few months later, both Lori and Chad were charged with first-degree murder. Justice was finally served this year, at least in one of the cases, when Lori was convicted on all charges relating to the murder of her children in May. In July, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Chad Daybell, on the other hand, is still awaiting his trial, as the trial process is a bit more complex than Lori's since he's facing the death penalty. His trial is expected to take place in April of 2024, and we will keep you posted on any and all information as that comes to pass. Let's move to number five, the case of Natalie Holloway. Natalie was an 18-year-old student from Alabama who, in 2005, went to the island nation of Aruba with over 100 of her fellow classmates on a graduation trip. Now, the trip was only supposed to last five days, but Natalie went missing in the tiny country, sparking an international investigation. Her classmates reported to investigators that they had last seen her at a local restaurant and nightclub called Carlos and Charlie's the night before she was set to fly back to the U.S. It was also discovered that she had been in the car leaving the establishment with three men, Joran Vandersloot from the Netherlands and his two brothers. The men denied knowing what happened to Natalie and said that they had dropped her off at her hotel. An extensive search of the island was conducted, with the American FBI even getting involved, as well as the Dutch Air Force and military, but Natalie was never found. The case became a major international news story, and various theories arose, but suspicions began to intensify around the three brothers, particularly Joran Vandersloot. 
And he was even arrested not once, but twice over the years, but was released both times due to lack of evidence. The case took several twists and turns, and a number of individuals made different claims about what happened that night. But tragically, it remained unsolved for months, then years, then over a decade. This had a devastating effect on Natalie's family and increased awareness about personal safety while traveling. But in June of 2023, a break in the case finally occurred when the man police suspected all along, Jordan Vandersloot, was extradited to the United States to stand trial for extortion and wire fraud as he attempted to get money from Natalie's own family. In October, not only did he plead guilty to the extortion charges, but he also admitted to killing Natalie with a blunt force object after she rejected his sexual advances. This finally brought Natalie Holloway's family in Alabama some closure after 18 long years. Our number four case is the main shooting. According to the Gun Violence Archive, as of December 18th, there have been over 41,000 deaths due to gun violence in the United States in 2023. Now, this list includes homicides, unintentional gun deaths, defensive gun deaths, and even suicide. But 640 of all gun deaths were from mass shootings this year, and 18 of those happened in a single mass shooting, the worst in the state of Maine's history. According to Google's analytics, the Maine shooting was the seventh most searched news story in the U.S. in all of 2023. It was due in part to the awful death toll of 18, along with 13 others who were shot. But it was also a major story because of where and how it happened. 40-year-old Robert Card, a military vet, had a history of mental health issues. And he even told people that he was going to shoot up places. Unfortunately, it wasn't thoroughly investigated at the time, and the Lewiston, Maine shooting became one of the worst of 2023. In fact, the shooting was really two spree shootings. First, Card went to the just-in-time bowling alley during a youth league event. That's where he opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle on bowlers, killing seven people instantly, with another three dying at the hospital. Just 12 minutes later and four miles away, Card entered a bar and grill and killed another eight people. His victims included Aaron Young, a 14-year-old honor student who died beside his father in the deadly rampage. A manhunt ensued and Card was eventually found the next day at his former place of employment, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Our number three case took place in late 2022, but its aftermath was felt well into 2023, making it one of the biggest true crime news stories. And that's the University of Idaho killings. In the early hours of November 13th of 2022, 
tragedy struck as four University of Idaho college students were fatally stabbed in their shared rental home near the campus. The victims included Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, who were both residents of the house, and also Kaylee Gonclaves, who had recently moved out but returned for a party. Ethan Chapin, who was Zana's boyfriend, was also a victim, having spent the night at the residence. The night before, Chapin and Kernodal had attended a party on campus at the Sigma Chi fraternity from about 8 to 9 p.m. They got back home late that night, around 1.45 a.m. Kaylee and Madison had visited the Corner Club, which was a downtown sports bar, from about 10 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. They even live-streamed a video online where they were at a food truck around 1.41 a.m., and they both seemed to be in good spirits. They then left the area and got a ride home, arriving around 1.56 a.m., and investigators even determined that they were alive as late as 4 a.m., as Zana had received a DoorDash order around that time. Now, some of the initial reports stated that both surviving roommates were unharmed and asleep, on the ground floor during the killings. But a probable cause affidavit later contradicted this. It indicated that one surviving roommate was on the second floor and was awakened by sounds of Gonclaves and her dog. The roommate heard somebody say, quote, there's someone here, end quote. Security cameras picked up a whimpering, loud thud and a barking dog around 4.17 a.m. The surviving roommate witnessed a figure in black clothing and a masked face walking past her towards the sliding glass door and eventually leaving. The four victims who died in this tragedy were discovered stabbed to death in their beds on the second and third floors. They weren't gagged, they weren't restrained, and blood spatter was evident on the walls. No 911 calls were made until 11.58 a.m. the next day, many hours after the killings. When police did arrive, they found no signs of forced entry or damage within the home, and nothing appeared to be missing, indicating that there was no robbery that took place. The surviving roommates and friends had called for help, believing one of the victims was unconscious. It was around noon where the victims were pronounced dead, and detectives estimated the killings occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. And Kaylee Gonclave's dog that we mentioned before was found unharmed at the house that night. An immediate investigation ensued conducted by the Moscow, Idaho Police Department, along with the Idaho State Police and the local county sheriff's office. In total, almost 130 members of law enforcement from three different agencies were working on the case. Police scoured the internet for clues. They looked at videos, Snapchats, phone records, and really anything that they could find. But it took a number of months to make an arrest. But finally, a 28-year-old man named Brian Christopher Kohlberger was taken into custody by the FBI and the Pennsylvania State Police on December 30th at the homes of his parents in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. That previous summer, Brian had moved to Washington State for a PhD at Washington State University in the town of Pullman. Now, although it's in another state, it is actually located less than eight miles from the town of Moscow. Brian was pursuing a doctoral degree in criminology and had actually completed his first semester there just a few days before his arrest. 
in December, weeks after the killings, faculty members actually met with Brian to discuss some concerns that they had about his conduct and personal behavior. He was then terminated from his teaching assistant role on December 19th. Brian was eventually arrested on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary and was extradited to Idaho on January 4th. It was in May of 2023 when it was announced that Brian was indicted by a grand jury on five charges, four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary. As of December 22nd of this year, prosecutors have asked Idaho's Second Judicial Court to schedule a hearing to set deadlines for Brian Koberger's murder trial in the summer of 2024. The trial was originally scheduled for October of this year, but was postponed indefinitely after Brian waived his right to a speedy trial. We have a whole podcast on this case that we released at the beginning of 2023 that you can check out. Now, I was actually debating as to what my number one case would be because both of these were huge and in the public eye, especially in the United States for much of the year. But number two is the trial of Alex Murdaugh. Now, the Murdaugh family has a long-standing legal and political legacy in the U.S. state of South Carolina, with several family members practicing law over the years. And in a strange twist of irony, one of their very own was involved in what many would call the trial of the century so far, but not as a lawyer, but rather as a defendant. It all culminated on June 7th of 2021. That was when Alex Murdaugh called his wife Maggie and asked for her presence at the Murdaugh Family Lodge. Now, he intended for both of them to travel together to visit his terminally ill father, Randolph Murdaugh III. But Maggie wasn't feeling so good about Alex's demeanor. In fact, she even texted a friend and said that she was a little suspicious and thought that maybe he was, quote, up to something, end quote. After she parked her car at the residence, she then went to the dog kennels, and that's where she discovered her son, Paul. Around 10 o'clock at night, Alex contacted the police using his cell phone, reporting that he had found the lifeless bodies of his wife, 52-year-old Maggie, and their younger son, 22-year-old Paul, near the dog kennels at the family's hunting lodge in Islandton, South Carolina. Both victims had sustained multiple gunshot wounds to the head, wrists, and the chest inflicted by different firearms. Now, Alex Murdaugh asserted that at the time of the murders, he had actually been in the company of his mother, who was suffering from dementia. But according to cell phone data that was later recovered, there was actually a video featuring Alex's voice that placed him at the scene prior to the deaths of Maggie and Paul which cast a doubt on Alex's alibi. In October of 2021, it became public knowledge that the Law Enforcement Division, otherwise known as SLED, identified Alex as a person of interest in both of the homicides, and Alex Murdaugh was eventually taken into custody in July of 2022 following an indictment by the county grand jury. This indictment charged him with two counts of murder and two counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime in connection to the deaths of his wife and son. 
According to the indictment, Alex allegedly used a rifle to shoot his wife and a shotgun to shoot his son. Alex Murdaugh pleaded not guilty, and prosecutors announced their intention to pursue life in prison without the possibility of parole, rather than seeking the death penalty. The trial began in January of 2023, and really, we could do an entire episode on the trial alone, but in the end, the verdict was announced on March 2nd after only three hours of deliberation. Alex Murdaugh was found guilty of two counts of murder and two counts of possession of a weapon during a violent crime. After the verdict was read, the defense almost immediately filed a motion for a mistrial, which the judge denied, saying to the jury, quote, The evidence of guilt is overwhelming. The circumstantial evidence, direct evidence, all of the evidence pointed to one conclusion. And that was the conclusion that you all reached. End quote. Murdaugh was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole just one day later. This past October, a judge signed an order granting a motion to suspend his conviction appeal and send the case back to a lesser court and look into jury tampering by the court clerk, Becky Hill. And Becky Hill herself was just this week accused of plagiarism by a co-author of a book she wrote about the murder trial. So there's still a lot of drama apparently going on with this case, and we'll have to see where things go from here in 2024. And that brings us to number one, the number one true crime case of 2023. It wasn't something that was on most people's radar, as a lot of people had given up that a suspect would ever be attached to this case, but it is the Gilgo Beach murders and the huge revelation that came out over the summer. On the east coast of the United States, a series of murders of sex workers took place between 1996 and 2011. Yet the public was largely unaware that a serial killer was walking among them until Shannon Gilbert went missing in May of 2010. This led authorities to open a broad investigations on the killings, resulting in the gruesome findings of at least four women dead buried on a secluded beach. These women would come to be known as the Gilgo Four, and a media firestorm surrounded the area in hopes to find answers and the culprit of these horrific murders. Six more sets of human remains were found nearby and linked to the same killer, but the case was cold. There were a number of persons of interest linked to the case, yet no concrete evidence had been found to connect any of the possible suspects to the murders. We even did an episode on it back in 2022 and actually had a number of theories as to who it may have been, but the man who was eventually arrested was on almost no one's radar. Rex Hewerman was identified as a suspect back in March of 2022 after authorities linked him to a pickup truck seen by a witness to one of the murders back in 2010. Now, slowly, police began to look into this guy and build their case. This included looking at his cell phone records, listening to voicemails, credit card purchases, and speaking anonymously with family members. 
They even found an old email address linked to Hureman where they found searches for some of the victims by name, documentaries, and podcasts on the investigation, and even searches for active and known serial killers in the area. In January of this year, a surveillance team recovered a leftover pizza box in Rex Hewerman's trash. In it, they found a half-eaten piece of pizza that they sent back to the lab for analysis. And finally, in June of 2023, a forensic lab concluded that the male hair recovered from one of the victims matched the DNA found on Hewerman's half-eaten pizza, linking him to the crime. The big arrest came in July, at which point authorities raided his home finding a number of burner phones that he had been using to contact sex workers, along with permits for 92 firearms. So far, police have linked him to at least three of the murders, and he is awaiting trial, which is set to commence in February of 2024. And that's it. That is a look at the top 10 true crime cases of 2023. Obviously, there is a lot that we left out, and some of these cases we have actually covered on previous podcasts, and you're welcome to check those out as well. But in the meantime, have a happy new year. I will be back here with Ryan next week. And don't forget to make good choices and don't get got. (laughs) 